Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning. Good morning. No touching. No touching. Any Arrested Development fans? Let's get right into it. There once was a man with two sons. Say that with me. There once was a man with two sons. One more time. There once was a man with two sons. Got it. How many sons? How many? How many people in the story? Ah, you guys got it. Good. So there once was a man with two sons. Over the past couple months, we have been exploring the idea of what does it mean to mature? What does it mean to be mature as a community? What does it mean to be mature as an individual? And what we've done is we've put Christ in the center. And so we've been walking through the book of Luke. And instead of uh, picking through the book of Luke and asking, where are moments that we think Jesus is being mature and then let's study those? (laughs) What we are doing is we are looking at Jesus and saying, whatever he is doing, that's maturity. And so we are looking through the, the things that he is doing, the stories he is telling, and saying that is what maturity looks like. That is what embodies what it means for us to step into a new place of maturity. Because we can all use that. Amen? Wow, I just said amen. I did that thing. Wow, that brings me back to when I was in high school. That's fun and creepy. So we are in Luke chapter 15, and we are going to be walking through the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is one of those beautiful stories. It's so rich. It's so deep. You've probably heard it a million times. And so that is can be tricky because there's always this notion when you approach a text that you are familiar with to either ignore it or to like try to dig so deep into it that you're like, I've got to find something new. And so hopefully we are somewhere in between those two this morning. Um, But let's pray and let the Holy Spirit do what he wills. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning amidst a world uh, in chaos And Father, we come to you for peace. Father, we come to you for guidance. We come to you for wisdom. And as we look to you for maturity, may we step out of this room this afternoon and bring that peace and that wisdom that comes from you to the world around us. Father, as we explore the Holy Scriptures, may you unveil new things to us. May you speak things into our hearts. May you open up our minds. May you renew us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are in Luke chapter 15, and we are going to be starting on verse 11. Jesus continued. It's a little clue. We'll get back to that in a second. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I'm going to lob that one at my dad sometime. You never even gave me a goat. But when, this, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Where we find ourselves when we read this verse is Jesus has been traveling the countryside. He recently had dinner at a Pharisee's house and there was all these questions about, about who's in, who's out. Jesus tells a story about a banquet. Uh, it, they start talking about the cost of what it takes to become a disciple. And then he's traveling and these crowds are gathering, these crowds are gathering and there's people murmuring and complaining and mumbling about like, well, why is he eating with these people and why is he hanging out with those people? And he's been seen doing this and seen doing that. Why are you doing this, Jesus? And in the classic Jesus move, he doesn't answer them. He just tells them a story, which is super cool when you read about it. But like, how frustrating would that be in real life? Like, so Jesus, why, why, just, I want to be clear, why exactly are you eating dinner with tax collectors? And he goes, well, there was a man that lost a coin once. You're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Is the coin the tax collector? Where, like, what's the connection? Um, so he talks about lost sheep, lost coin, and then we get to this story. The story of the lost son, or the lost sons, you could argue. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine that. And what we're going to say is we're going to look at it and everyone around is looking at the story saying, who's in, who's out? What's the, what's the qualification? What's the gatekeeper here? Who's in, who's out? We're going to talk about it and I'm going to use this fancy, dan fancy dancy, that's not a word, or it is a word, but not the way you should use it, this fancy dandy whiteboard to talk about it. So we have our characters, right? We have a father, it will be a triangle, because Trinity, woo. And then we have two sons. There they are, our two sons. 
So these are our characters in this story. And when we look at the story and we look at the theme and we contemplate what, is, what are we talking about, who's in, who's out, what is the gateway, there is a word that comes to mind and that is this word. You probably can't see it yet. Repentance. Now, when uh, Ryan talked to us about who wants to talk about what, and we were dividing up Luke, uh, the last time I got up here and talked, we talked through the uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and I was like, I want an easy one, let's go with the prodigal son, and then I started reading the prodigal son, I'm like, dang it, it's about repentance, because repentance has this weight to it, right? Repentance seems to be the gatekeeper. There's this notion, this weight to it that like, oh, there's these rituals, there's these moments, there's these postures that I have to take. Repentance. Am I standing? Am I sitting? Am I raising a hand? Is there like a magic prayer I'm supposed to say? I don't know, but I know it's important. And there's a weight. But there's two words we're going to look at that are used throughout the scriptures to talk about repentance. So the first word is actually a Hebrew word, and it is teshuva. Say it. Teshuva. You can also get really fancy and you can cut out this E and just do this guy. And it's teshuva. You want to try that? Teshuva. Yeah, we just forget the E and we're just going straight for it. Teshuva. So that's the two ways to spell it. So this is, this is the Hebrew understanding of the word repentance. So when you're reading your Old Testament and you're seeing the word repentance, most of the time it is teshuva. Teshuva means to return. It's this, it's this backwards action, not backwards as in like wrong, but like this returning posture. It moves this way. It's a conservative posture. It's going back to a better time. It's going back to a place of innocence. This embodies this notion that intimacy equates innocence. It's the notion that the people of Israel have wandered away from what God's plan was for them in the garden and if they can do the right motions, if they can do the right steps, they can get back to that place of intimacy by the way of innocence. This is the motion that we see in the younger son. The younger son goes away. He leaves. He squanders all his inheritance. He realizes that he's gone too far. He's working with some pigs. Never a good scenario. He wants to eat the pig's food. This is getting real bad. There's probably not even like tissues available at the Walmarts. It's a bad scenario. So he returns. And there's this notion where he returns in a state that he has belittled himself. He's like, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have um, sinned against heaven and against you. It's very dramatic. It is, I am, I am the dirt and I need to crawl back to you. It's this returning motion. We know, of course, the father wraps him up in his arms and loves him. This is kind of reflected in our modern idea and uh, Christianity of this notion of being born again. How many of you were raised in an evangelical church? Anyone? Wow, there's only like four of us? Where are the rest of you to come from? I'm glad you're here. <laughs> but for those of us that were raised in that notion, there's this moment, like at the end of every service, it's like, who wants to be born again? Raise your hand. We're going to say a prayer now and you're good. It's this idea of you're going to be returning to that place of innocence. Billy Graham would use this part of the story. Billy Graham, who is this famous, everyone knows who Billy Graham is? Do I have to go through the who's Billy Graham thing? Anyway, Billy Graham, <laughs> Billy Graham would use the story and he would usually stop right after the return. He would stop after the prodigal son had come home. 
And he would stand there and in his awesome Billy Graham voice, which I cannot do at all, he would say, just come. Just come, return. The Father's waiting for you. And hundreds, if not thousands of people would flood down the aisles to return because they're longing for this place of intimacy by the way of innocence. But we can't end there. And the reason we can't end there is because new empires arose. 400 years passes between the Old Testament and the Hebrew language that was used for the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in those empires and those ideas shift and those people change and kings rise and kings fall, mentalities move. And a new language is embracing the world. And it's the language of Greek, which is good because we also have another son to contend with. So this language, they could have easily, when they sat down to write the New Testament, they could have easily said, well, let's just find what the Greek word is for return, which I did not look up, so I cannot tell you what that is, and let's use that. But they didn't. What they wanted to do is they wanted to explore maybe a different facet of what the true heart of repentance is. Because whenever you interpret something, or whenever you translate something, you're kind of doing the work of interpretation too. So what they did is they took a totally different approach. And you may have heard of this word as well. And this is metanoia. Now metanoia means to change, specifically changing your mind. Now this isn't like changing your mind, like if I were to say, guys, after church, I really want some Mexican food. And then you all say like, no, but like Olive Garden has unending breadsticks. And I go, you know, good point. You've changed my mind. I've metanoid. We're going to Olive Garden. That's not what this means. This is something different. This is a little bit more like, uh, let's talk about it relationally. Let's say you meet somebody for the first time. And the first time you've met... It, you didn't click. There, it was cold between the two of you. Maybe like they didn't laugh at your jokes or you didn't laugh at theirs. That's a big pain point for me, obviously. Um, <laughs> like, but for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. And so you're like, oh man, I guess that person doesn't really like me or I don't really like them or something weird's going on. But then over time, all the people around you, trustworthy people, people that do laugh at your jokes, tell them, tell you, that person's actually really great. Like, I don't know, you must have caught them on a weird day. There must have been something else going on. You maybe should give them another chance. And then you do, and all of a sudden, a new relationship starts forming. Your mind has totally shifted about this person because the entire context, you're given more context. You're given more understanding. It's not just a this or this. You've, you've, you've convinced me. This is a, my understanding has changed. You've gone from black and white to color, 2D to 3D. Something is, is, is totally new. This is a new understanding, and this new understanding is a, progressive is a progressive state. So it's forward moving. So whereas Teshuvah is returning back to a place, Metanoia is the promise that there is the Father that we have not reached yet, and he is ahead of us. And maybe this, this word doesn't exactly embody what I'm trying to say, but, but roll with me for a second. It's this notion that intimacy might come through enlightenment or through the shifting of your mind. We see this 
also reflected in both the New and the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this notion that in the Psalms, they talk about how, how uh, my ways are higher than your ways. And this idea that God's thoughts are way up here and that we are like peeking in through the veil to see him. And, and maybe as we start to understand what's going on, they talk about David having a heart after God. And, after, and that's why he could understand that he could like eat the, the table of showbread, off the table of showbread. We also see this in the New Testament when the New Testament writers talk about the changing of your heart, this constant renewal of your mind, this way of shifting thoughts, shifting priorities, shifting, 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 evolving, changing enlightenment. It's the motion we see the father inviting the older son into. The older son was out in the field while his brother was partying. He was working. He had his inheritance all set up. He was good to go. Younger brother comes around and now he's ticked off because younger brother's getting a party. And the father, seeing that his older son is not there, goes out to meet him where he's at and invites him into the party. Change your way of thinking, son. Change what you're doing. Change your perspective. My son was dead and now he's alive. He's inviting him in to a forward progressing. Now we can look at this and we can see, if we look at this very miraculously drawn diagram, we can see a few things. We can see the plot of our story of the prodigal son. We can see here they were with the father. They have both kind of gone their own way. The younger son returns to the father. The older son is invited. We don't know if he embraces the invite or not. But he's invited into this new place of understanding back into intimacy again. We can also look at that and we can see maybe um, the cross-cultural narrative there. Uh, this was taught a lot when I was uh, in seminary. This notion that... Um, <laughs> Woo, tricky. Uh, the notion that uh, this story, the story of return and invitation of the, the wandering brother back in is like the story of the Gentiles who had lost their way, who are now being invited back in. And the story of the restrictive, maybe um, curmudgeon older brother is the people of Israel who have hardened their hearts to God over and over and over again. Delicate, delicate ground to walk. There's, all, there's other ways we could look at it too. There, we could look at it in a personal way. And this is also a scenario. You could say, we, you and I, woo, you and I were born into a place of innocence. Then over a, a point in time, we had drifted away from God. And now we find ourselves here again apart. Then, right at when this language shift were to happen. Wait, we'll get there in a second. Then, we are invited to return through a moment of salvation, that moment of choice, that the sinner's prayer thing that we were talking about earlier. Then, from that moment on, we are invited to move forward into the promise of tomorrow on a personal level. You could also look at it on a historical meta-narrative version where you have the same thing, where you have God created the earth and humanity in a place of innocence. Humanity as a whole drifted away. I was constantly called to return. And then the cross happens in the middle. Right when the language barrier shifts. In between the BC AD changeover. And then from this moment on we are called into metanoia. Those are a few different ways that we could look at it. The problem with looking at these things this way. Is that 
none of these explanations, I don't think, fully embrace what repentance is. I think these are interesting. I think this is fun to draw on a whiteboard. But it doesn't fully encapsulate. And we know it doesn't fully because they were still searching for new words, new ways to describe this experience. See, the trick is, with the return, with teshuva, you're promised a blank slate. And to a person that has a long rap sheet, a blank slate can be a good thing, but a blank slate can also be a heartaching thing if you're thinking about how much progress you've made. Uh, a while ago, I was a youth pastor, and it was during when uh, cutting became a thing known to the public, and there was this epidemic, and Trite Love and Arms was big, and everyone wore their shirts and stuff. And there was one girl who was in my youth group who would come up, and every week she would tell me how many weeks or how many days she had gone without cutting herself. And she would get to large numbers, 30, 40, 50 days, and we would rejoice together at the end of the service. But then there'd be the days where she had to tell me zero or one, two. And while the blank slate, I would try to use the language of it's okay. You know, you're clean. God has forgiven you. We're moving forward. The thought of going back to zero is heartaching. And that's where metanoia can help. The idea of changing your perception, that can help. But the problem with metanoia can come into this place when we're thinking only progressively and only in the mindset of like the future is out there and the, we run the race to the goal we may not ever reach to. That can either be really motivational or really discouraging depending on your personality type. There could be a point when you've been running and running and running and running and running and you still don't see the finish line. There are times where you get tired and you get exhausted, and you're like, this progressive path of being called forward and forward and forward. I just want to rest for a second. Can I just go back to a place of innocence that I can be held by my father again? And I was thinking about this, because this is where we were going to end. I mean, we were going to talk about it a little bit more, but I was going to end basically here and then like invite you up forward and be like, and now you need to ask the Holy Spirit, do I need to return or do I need to change? And then, you know, we were going to do that thing. But I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to, to look at it differently, to go deeper or, or maybe wider. And I had this really embarrassing revelation. And it was embarrassing because it should have been the first thing I thought of. See, I was rocking my son to sleep and I realized I am a man with two sons. And how that shifts my entire understanding of this parable. See, when I found out, I have two sons, two boys. Uh, Asher is five, almost six, and Wesley just turned one and they are both adorable and they've taught me more about love and life and practically everything, science and math, <laughs> especially Asher. If you know Asher, you can, he's five and you're like, what's 27 minus 18? And he's like, I got it. And I'm like sitting here doing the math on my phone to make sure he's right. He's got it. Um, but I love them so completely and so fully. But when I found out that I was about to have my second son, I actually was terrified. 
See, I was terrified that I wasn't going to be able to have a second compartment for him. I remember actually telling people, like, I kind of wish, because before we found out the gender, I was like, I kind of wish that it's a girl, because then it'd be easier for me to, like, compartmentalize them in my mind. I'd be like, oh, yeah, Asher's the boy one, and so he does boy things, and then so-and-so is the girl one, and she does girl things, which we all know would have gotten ruined, we all know she would have been like a quarterback and, you know, I don't, Wesley would have, I don't know, watched HGTV or something. <laughs> that, that's wrong for either of those things to exist. Um, but when I found out that my second child was going to be a boy, I was honestly really terrified. I was like, what if they're too much alike? What if I don't have clear lines of connection with each of them? I was terrified. And then they came, and then they were totally different, and then that's not a problem. But I was thinking about myself in this story, and I started to think about the stories that come before this story, about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons. And I find it interesting that whenever we talk about the prodigal son, and whenever even the greats, like Billy Graham would talk about it, we would ask ourselves, which son am I? Which son are we? Which son is Israel? Which son is the Gentiles? Which son, like, which son is the state of it? But the entire narrative is not about which son you are. The entire narrative is about the heart of the father and the links that he will go to reunite with his creation. This is really about the third character. And I started to think about myself. And in my flawed state, even the amount of love that I have for my two sons, there is nothing they could do. I thought about it. I made like a list because I wanted to be able to say that. And I was like, what if they did this? Yeah. What if they did that? Uh, Yeah. I went through the list. There's nothing they could do. They could hate me. They could turn the world against me. They could tell everybody I didn't even exist. And I would still love them. Now they can maybe remove themselves out of my reach physically. Like I could like not be able to protect them in a way, which is terrifying. They might remove themselves out of my influence, my, my sphere of influence, and then like do things that I couldn't help them with. Also terrifying. But it would not change the core version or the core vision that I love them more than anything else in the world. Ryan, a few weeks ago, talked about how intimacy with God is our primary calling. And if repentance is the the angle that we come to intimacy... Well, then what repentance shows us is that then intimacy with creation is the Father's primary motivation. Up, down. You see, I want to invite us this morning to look past all the linear narratives. I want to look past the bipartisanship. I want to look past the conservative nature. I want to look past the progressive nature. Look past the Hebrew and the Greek. I feel like God this morning is revealing that he deals with us differently. 
Maybe he deals with nations differently. I don't know. But the motivation is the same. See, when we look to Christ as our revelation of maturity, he is telling this story to reveal to us of another ancient concept, another Hebrew word, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Now imagine, God incarnate, standing amongst his creation, telling them stories about how much he loves them. If there's a lost sheep, I will find it. If there's a lost coin, I will turn the house upside down until I find it. If my sons leave me or don't understand me, I will beg and plead for them to come back. I will run to them when I see them in the field. And the entire time all we can think about is which brother am I? Who is he talking about? Who, do I need, am I the one that needs to re- repent? Am I? He, Jesus is standing there saying, God wants to be with you and be present with you. And they are psychoanalyzing his story and figuring out which part they fit in. Perhaps maturity is not looking at repentance in a line at all. Perhaps maturity is starting to understand that repentance is this almost like symbiotic circle, this dance of returning and changing, returning and changing, changing and returning, that is all happening within the loving embrace of the Father. Wherever we're at, whether we need to return, whether we need to change, whether we need to do some, some third thing altogether, all of it is happening inside the embrace of a Father that just loves you and wants to run to you and hold you. Today, um, because of the things going on in the world, we're not going to have communion. But what I want to do is I want to invite you into a place of Emmanuel. I want to invite you into a place of God with us. And however that means, however you need to posture yourself, if you need to bow your head, if you need to go to the back of the room, you can come to the altar if you want. Whatever you need to do to return, to change, regardless of that, do it in the embrace of your Father. Some of us will need to spend the whole time just allowing Him to hug us and hold us because we have issues with that. And that's okay. It's okay. Before I had both of my kids, I remember sitting in a service and crying, tears streaming down my eyes because life was stressful and all I wanted was to be held. I just wanted to be held. I was a grown man. And I was like, I just want someone to hold me spiritually and physically too. Sure, why not? But I, I wanted to be held. And I didn't feel two giant arms swoop, up, swoop down and, and hold me in that moment. But he was with me. He was Emmanuel. 
And then a few years later, he gave me a son to hold. And I started to see through his eyes how much he desires to hold each and every one of us. Calling us forward, reminding us of the beauty of our intimacy and the innocence that we have. So we're going to go into a moment of worship. And I just encourage you, close your eyes, bow your heads, get on your knees, stand up, whatever you need to do to be embraced by your Father, to understand that, yes, repentance is the doorway, but it's not a guarded gate. It's a loving embrace. Father, we come to you. Hold us. Holy Spirit, envelop us. Reveal to us your heart, your nature, your desire. Let us look past our stories. Let us look past the narratives. Let us look past the systematic theologies of salvation and damnation and and for a moment hold us in your arms be present with us remind us of your presence remind us of your heart to run and meet us or to come outside and plead with us to change feel comfortable, open your hands out in front of you. Father, whatever we hold in our hands that is keeping us from you, we hold open to you in the way a child would hold their hands open to their father. Embrace us. Change us. Mature us. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.